You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis and joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is Tim Burrows. Hello, Damien. Olivia Crimmel. Hello, Damien. And Xander Wilson. Hey, Damo. Later in the Mumbrella cast, Olivia will be talking to Pure Profile CEO Martin Phils about how Pure Profile got back in the black by cutting debt and focusing on core services. And so, number one, remove the debt. Number two, be absolutely laser focused on the core business that is data and insights and, and media. Consumers waking up to the fact that they are really valuable. Consumers are sort of waking up to the fact that they're really valuable. And their data is valuable and they're valuable as people. And we've always worked with double opt-in and you get rewarded for what you're doing. And why moving beyond third-party cookies is a global problem. So we are having exactly the same conversations, whether it's in London, New York, here, Singapore or, or mainland Europe. But first, the week's topics. Icentia to be acquired by Access Intelligence. Seven's latest trading update and 10 Viacom CBS up close put under the microscope. And News Corp's REA Group buys a stake in Sympology as the real estate wars heat up. Media monitoring and data tech company Icentia has received a takeover bid from Access Intelligence, a software as a service or SaaS provider for the PR communications and marketing industries. Access Intelligence will acquire 100% of the share capital in Icentia. It does not already own at a price of 0.175 a share. There have been so many twists and turns in the iCentra story. Just last month, Liv, you reported that six people had been made redundant and the share price had plummeted to a new low of 0.68, giving the business a market cap of uh, around $13.34 million dollars. This news must have uh, been good for shareholders. They're probably breathing a bit of a sigh of relief. Uh, That's a significantly higher valuation for the business than a few weeks ago. Yes, it is, Damien. Uh, Accenture's share price is down, was down around the seven cent mark for much of the past month, although it's worth noting that its price jumped on the news of the takeover, not surprisingly, up to around 16 a share, which is what the offer is pretty much for. Uh, The company has certainly had a fall from grace the past few years. In the past three years alone, its half-year revenue has dropped from $67 million in FY 2018 down to $41.8 million in its most recent half-yearly report for the six months to December 2020. That's nearly a 40% decline and it was also $10.4 million less than the previous corresponding period. So, Um, H1 of FY20. Um, The company's revenue in the first half of the current financial year was impacted by that cyber incident, which we reported on heavily in October last year, creating an estimated at the time 4.4 million impact on earnings, but it's now jumped to actually a seven to eight million dollar impact on earnings for the current financial year results. So definitely been a tough run for them. I think a pertinent question to ask at this stage would be who is Access Intelligence and why on earth would they want to purchase uh, iCentra? That's a great question. The Access Intelligence is a UK-based software as a service provider for the PR, communications and marketing industries. 
It has some 3,500 clients, according to their website, which include world-leading marketing agencies, public sector organizations, and blue-chip clients. Some of the names that they mention as clients include Amazon, AstraZeneca, Boots, Chanel, Dow Jones, Saatchi & Saatchi, Twitter. So definitely some recognizable brands there who obviously think that their product or service is worthwhile. Um, it was reported in their um, most recent financial results that they had a 42% year-on-year increase uh, up to 19.1 million uh, pounds, which equates to about 35 million in AUD. So it's surprising that actually its revenue is not as significant as Icentia's and yet they're the one who are purchasing Icentia. Yeah, an interesting point that. Uh, Tim, I'd love to throw this one your way because, of course, we spoke about iCenture a few weeks ago on the Mumbrella cast and we spoke in that case about Ed Harrison and whether he was the right person to get iCenture out of the the woes it was in. Uh, Has he been just handed an amazing get-out-of-jail-free card here or... Do you expect that perhaps this deal will see him exit the company at some stage? A few different parts to that question, obviously. And I'm, I'm trying to think about my monopoly analogies for the get out of jail free card. Um, I think the the the, the challenge for Icenti was, of course, a near monopoly company for a while. See, Monopoly. Nice one. Well done. At least, uh, uh, yeah, we're, uh, uh, and that's genuinely what it was. It had the lion's share of the media monitoring market. And, of course, it, it's hard to know where to go from that. So we won't re- re- rehash the whole King Content thing where they tried to move into to, to content marketing. But that was definitely part of the challenge on how to how to widen the footprint and, 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 and grow. Um, and I think the question was – if the company has to reinvent itself, then, you know, the question you, you, you'd asked on a previous Mumbrella cast was Ed Harrison, the person to do that, having sort of come from, you know, traditional media roles, I suppose. Um, I'm not sure I would accept it is a get out of jail free card. You know, for me, for, for the company, let's admit it, it's a failure. You know, this was a company that was worth well over half a billion dollars in terms of market capitalization. Um, it was talking about having, you know, maybe one day a market capitalization of a billion dollars. And, you know, this deal values it. It depends how you measure it because obviously you you, you look at his market capitalization on the um, uh, on the ASX, which is a bit under 20 million. But then when you add in the debt as well, you, you then get the enterprise value, which maybe takes it up to, I think it was 60 or 70 million. But um, that's really disappointing for the by far the biggest company of its type in Australia. So the, certainly the shareholders will be quite disappointed. I suppose for, for our audience and our market, one of the questions will be, you know, what sort of service um, is, is going to be available as a result? Access Intelligence is positioning itself as a, or is positioned as a software as a service. That usually means quite low touch for clients. So it will be quite interesting whether the old um, Icentia or when it was known as Media Monitor's model stays in place or whether this is actually a new thing for, for Access. So I guess we'll get to know that organization as time goes on. 
Uh, and noting that Access Intelligence's CEO has said that she will come to Australia for a 12-month period uh, to set up um, to help the transition, uh, I can't help but think back to the MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment e- example where the, the global CEO came over and very quickly we, we saw uh, the managing director at the time, Jamie Gilbert-Smith, uh, exit. Uh, Tim, in your experience, is this a, a standard operation for, for the global leader to, to come into the local market? I, I, I suppose the hidden question in that is, what does it mean for the current management? Um, and I think the answer to that is nobody will, will know. You know, I I suspect there's – one of the things you realise about these things is, is sometimes these acquisitions happen and people actually don't know what they're buying in that much detail and they don't know the personnel. There's only so much due diligence you can do from a distance. So I suspect the that that next chapter is actually unwritten. Oh, well, he's hoping that if she does want to come, that she can A, get a flight and B, is prepared for two weeks of hotel quarantine. Coming up next, 7 and 10, drop big announcements. This week was a big one for TV with Seven West Media issuing a trading update after turning around a rough start to the year in the linear ratings. Meanwhile, Viacom CBS continued its investment in football and also held its up-close media event. Let's start with Seven West Media for no other reason than it did its update first. Xander, you were on the call. Uh, Why the update call now and what was the business trying to flag? Yeah, so it was definitely a good news update for uh, Seven West Media today and and something that I've perhaps been expecting uh, off the back of seven t- linear TV ratings week wins in a row now. Um, they've really turned the year around in the context of linear TV ratings overall being down, but, you know, against their number one competitor, Nine, they've now won seven weeks in a row. The trading update today, there were some figures in there underlying EBITDAs, now expected to be between $250 and $255 in financial year 21, and we'll get those results in August. Uh, But today, Seven and and James Warburton spoke about the positive trading conditions in, in Q4 of the financial year. He also admitted some failures on the network's part, which was quite blunt and interesting. He admitted that some of the formats that they launched at the start of the year were, were quite risky. Uh, he said that Holy Moly started well but faded, something we knew already. And, and he also admitted that Ultimate Tag was an outright failure. Now, that's a format that they've already said isn't going to come back for next year. But um, it was refreshing to see him just sort of admit the exact state of that. I don't remember them admitting they were risky before they went to air, though. No, he, they definitely didn't. But he he sort of said it in the context of they've now gotten through the riskiest period of the year, um, obviously alluding to the fact that the back end of the year is quite a strong slate for them. And, and, and Warburton did highlight some strong performances of the AFL in particular, Dancing with the Stars and, and that sort of thing leading into the rest of the year. And looking towards the rest of the year, there's obviously the Olympics. So we've spoken about that quite a lot. But but for the for the rest of the slate, there's a trifecta of talent shows they've got coming. The Voice, a proven ratings winner. Australia's Got Talent, for which they've recently announced some new judges, uh, axing Carl Sanderlands and a few others for Kate Ritchie and and sort of headlining Neil Patrick Harris uh, on there. Australian Idol is coming back as well. So that's sort of a bit of an unknown proposition now because it's been away for so long. 
Then there's SAS Australia, which rated quite well last year, Celebrity Big Brother, The Ashes, and then at the end of the year, the Winter Olympics too, and of course, the Big Bash League. So um, given how well a lot of those shows performed in the past, I think we can expect a much stronger linear back half for seven. One of the positives that was also mentioned as well was, of course, uh, digital. Now, you caught up with uh, Seven's Chief Revenue Officer and also the Director uh, of the Olympics for Seven, Kurt Burnett, and the Chief Digital Officer, Jared Roberts, uh, in April. At the time, they were saying they were aiming for $8 million, uh, on Seven Plus, uh, $8 million, million registered users. Uh, BVOD news coming out of the update, very interesting. Looks like those goalposts have changed, uh, the numbers have changed. What was the update there? Yeah, I mean, so we're hoping to get to get Kurt on the Mumbrella cast just before the Olympics start, so we might get another update then. But but just to start with this morning and, and what you alluded to there, Seven's expecting big things from BVOD and, and its digital offering moving into 2022. Uh, Warburton predicted earnings from digital will double in the next financial year. And Seven now estimates its advertising revenue, including BVOD, will grow more than 45% in Q4 of financial year 21. Uh, to answer your specific question, though, seven plus users uh, have grown 62% in the financial year to date. That that came in the address this morning, and Warburton said this morning that the user base is now at 6.3 million users. Now that's getting close to that 8 million mark they flagged earlier in the year, but he said they're hoping to reach 10. Uh, he also flagged that seven plus revenue is up 79% this financial year as well. So it's clear that digital is going to be massive for them um, in the future. You know, we've spoken about the the positives and, and the revenue increases and, and the user increases. What about the the, the net debt, which was uh, or has been uh, for some time a, a pretty significant talking point? Yeah, so as you might expect, it wasn't a big show and dance about the debt this morning. Uh, but Seven did reveal that their net debt's expected to come in between two hundred and forty and two hundred and fifty million at the end of the financial year. Uh, Warburton said that cost control ma- remains an ongoing focus, and and that they expect costs to come into line with guidance at the lower end of the range. But he also admitted that there will be continued incremental costs that are going to make that difficult from the Olympic Games in, in Tokyo, and and then later in the year the Ashes test series that they'll be broadcasting too. And I do wonder with the debt as well what it will look like beyond the coming year as well, given that a few a few planets aligned actually for James Warburton. The the delay of the Olympics was actually good for Seven in terms of cash flow because it pushed that into another financial year. Obviously they did a few deals, got the numbers down. And I wonder if there was a a window to do whatever transformative deal Seven is looking for and how long that window remains open for. And once we start seeing the debt begin to blow out again, which I think most people are expecting. Especially with the Olympics. Yes, exactly, because then they'll have to sort of pay that fee and it's starting to look almost impossible for the Olympics to be cancelled now. Um, then you you wonder how much new pressure that Seven will find itself. So if there is a deal to be done, I wonder if we're into the magic window right now for it. Let's move quickly on then uh, before we run out of time, talk about the 10 Up Close uh, event, virtual event. Uh, that was this morning and, and you've run quickly out of that into the Umbrella Cast, Sander. What, what did we learn from that? Yeah, so it was a fairly brief update and uh, Viacom CBS did also flag that there will be an in-person update later in the year. I imagine that will go into 
the content and strategy around Paramount Plus in quite a lot more detail. But the Up Close event this morning uh, came off the back of a couple of big deals that we've actually covered recently uh, with football in Australia. We've already discussed the the A-League deal a few weeks ago, but but just last week there was a another deal to broadcast all national matches uh, on 10 and Paramount Plus, which includes the Matildas, Socceroos, Oliroos, plus the Asian Cup, and also at a domestic level, the FFA Cup. And and um, Chief Content Officer and EVP for Viacom CBS Australia and New Zealand, Beverly Mugabe, gave a short update on that and and about how Paramount Plus will create what she believes will be a, a unique audience proposition for advertisers in conjunction with 10 and the sport and entertainment offering across both of them. The main part of the presentation, though, was going over 10 slate for the back end of the year, which for seven, just like for seven, looks quite strong. Um, and there was also a big influence on why 10's audience is different. Uh, we had Chief Sales Officer Rod Prosser talking about why 10's younger audience is, is valuable because it's more discerning and purpose-driven. He also said uh, a line which I feel like we've heard before, but he said, we are no longer the third network. We are one of three networks. And then we had National Sales Director Lisa Squilacci uh, speaking about how TENS audience is engaging with their with their content across multiple platforms more often than on the other networks. 60% of TENS audience consumes its content on other touch points other than linear television. And she also took the opportunity to call seven and nine's audiences rusted on. Uh, we then had a few... Uh, we then had a quick go through of, of what we're expecting from 10 in the back end of the year, The Bachelor, Bachelorette, Survivor, Masked Singer, things that we're expecting. Um, they did announce a few new shows, including uh, one that Todd Sampson is coming back with called Mirror Mirror, exploring body image. It sort of looks like it's in the same vein as Body Hack and those sorts of other successful shows that Todd has done. Uh, and there's also going to be another show called Making It Australia, which is a craft-based show. And then uh, to finish up 10, we'll be reviving Celebrity MasterChef, which we already knew, but they did reveal the lineup for that. It'll include actor Rebecca Gibney, Olympian Ian Thorpe. Uh, And then there was also Chrissy Swan, uh, comedian Dilruk Jai Singer. And then the one that stood out to me was Fox Sports football caller and former soccer Archie Thompson. And we do, we know how much 10 love to use talent across their whole ecosystem. So that could be a sign that he'll be part of the A-League coverage on Paramount+. Plus. Tim, anything in any of what Xander's just said, which makes you believe that 10 is no longer third of three, but in the mix to become something different than that? One, one of three, was it that they were trying to describe themselves as? Look, if there's one slight change in emphasis or even big change in emphasis is it feels like the strategy is sport now ahead of drama. Whereas a couple of years back, it, I'd have said it was the other way. You know, I, I, there was no, you know, in, in that rundown Zander game, there was nothing in terms of dra- the dra- drama slate. Really. I mean, to, to be fair, they did flag a number of the shows that are coming from Paramount. Obviously, uh, Viacom CBS owns and Paramount has a lot of stuff overseas. So all those titles will come. Yes, but local drama, there's just no, all of the money seems to be going into sports rights. At this stage, for sure, for sure. So yeah, it is interesting that they're they're using sport as a massive place to to kick off, if you'll excuse the pun, uh, when they arrive in Australia in August. And this is going to be the fascinating thing, just thinking about it, is obviously you're going to have the same battle with Nine and Stan. Sports rights is going to be the main battleground, very similar to 10. Does that leave a gap for Seven to, well, to well, that's own, it. own some drama, local drama? Well, well, I thought you were just going to say Seven's the only one that doesn't have its own SVOD platform now, which is also true, but, um, yes. but, but perhaps yes. Yes, perhaps and yes. maybe they get in bed with Peacock when that comes along, the NBC Universal one. 
Coming up next, REA Group invests in Sympology. REA Group is continuing to diversify, announcing a 34% stake in Sympology. Sympology is a leading provider of mortgage application and e-lodgement solutions for the brokering and lending industries. The deal came just days ahead of the second court hearing for the group's 100% takeover of Mortgage Choice Limited. And yesterday, REA share price hit an all-time high on the ASX of $170.61. What do we know about the deal, Liv? Yes, their stake in Sympology is said to provide REA Group with the ability to provide consumers with more choice when navigating home loan options. And as anyone in Australia right now knows, the property market is going gangbusters. Uh, Each week it seems there's a new record high, particularly in markets such as Sydney and Brisbane, where appetite for property has increased substantially despite the, uh, you know, prolonged COVID lockdowns and uncertainty. Uh, Even economists are saying this is unprecedented territory for the market and they're not really sure what is driving it. So, interesting to see that, yes, REA Group are now looking to capitalise even further on that market by branching into these new areas such as the Sympology uh, acquisition, which is worth around $15 million and is said to be uh, funded from the group's existing cash reserves. It's worth noting that, you know, despite obviously an interesting 2020 for much of the Australian corporate world, um, REA Group did only have a minor drop in in revenue and profit uh, last year. So they are in, in good financial shape basically and are said to be, you know, quite significant contribution to News Corp's overall financial standing at the moment. Um, their acquisition of mortgage choice is another really interesting diversification for the group because that is a brokering business that is, you know, at the forefront of property transactions. So Mortgage Choice has about 500 brokers nationally, 380 franchises. It's a huge acquisition. It's worth some, you know, $250 million roughly. So it's significant changes at REA Group and it will be interesting to see how the management adapts to having those different facets of the industry under the one company. Uh, why now? Why is real estate becoming this big battleground? Tim, you've been monitoring this for, for quite some time, particularly from the perspective of, of Catalano. I guess taking a, a step back for the last decade, classifieds generally have been a, a battleground once they moved away from traditional newspapers. And of course, you know, for all the economic reasons, Liv has just laid out real estate in particular. Now it so happens that we have a potential third player in Anthony Catalano because he he came up through Fairfax and Domain before ending up as the owner of Australian Community Media after kind of his, you know, unhappy exit from Domain. So the big, big question is, can he use his expertise on how that market works to create a a third player um and maybe it's a third player coming out of regional media that might be the point of difference and then if that is the point of difference then it actually can be in multiple classifieds you know it'd be, be, be 
because if it works for real estate, maybe it would work for cars and jobs and everything else as, you know, just playing out in the region. So that, you know, it's an open question and I, I don't think anybody knows whether it will work or not, but that feels like the direction is going in. Um, and as to the kind of question of, well, why now? Um, I, I guess that's where, where the competition is hot at the moment. Um, and you do, you know, if you want to look where it's hot, then you look for, for the market signals and, you know, we, 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 how big companies allocate their capital says a lot. So obviously through REA, we're seeing News Corp continue to go hard in real estate, understandably. And then when we look at the News Corp more generally, the fact that they're investing in or look to be investing in the gambling side of things, wagering, um, you know, the betting world, then that says something as well about sort of diversification away from pure media. We've we've also seen that recently with Seven Western, in particular Kerry Stokes, looking at Borrell, for instance. That's another diversification away, although he has got experience with the mining and resources sector. Yeah, see, I'd argue, I'd argue that's a red herring. I mean, there's no right and wrong answer, but because that's through Seven Group Holding, that's he's always played in that world as well. So I, I'd, I'd argue that's what pays for his investment in Seven West Media rather than the other way around. But argue with me because I'm not. <laughs> not right. We've got to wrap pretty soon, so not <laughs> Let, too much. Let's more leave argument. it there. <laughs> um, b- before we get back on track, is it just me or is anyone a, a little bit uh, concerns the wrong word, but curious about the the silence of domain for quite some time now? Is, is there anything really happening? With Look, domain, they, ever since Pellegrino took it over, there doesn't seem to have been much movement. It, well, I thought they had a good they had a good pandemic. You know, mm. the way they handled their costs, they they gave staff um, shares in return for taking uh, uh, taking pay cuts. That was innovative and that was good. Um, the big question I've always had since um, um, Jason Pellegrino came in, and they had a change of strategy away in in how they sold their media. They moved to the programmatic model just as the programmatic market collapsed. And yes, it was more efficient and they were able to talk about a higher ROI, but also I think much lower revenues as a result. So, um, so yeah, uh, it felt like a, you know, it was a move from an ex-Googler. As you know, I'm always a bit cynical about just that sort of thing of you give somebody a, a big job just because they used to work at Google isn't as impressive as it once used to be, you know the whole issue with Michelle Guthrie at the ABC, for instance. Um, so I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I could describe what Domain has done to move forward its strategy over the last year or two. Coming up next, Olivia will talk to Pure Profile CEO Martin Phils. In just under four weeks' time, Mumbrella 360 Reimagined is coming to Sydney with a two-day media and marketing conference that will change the game. Spanning three venues and four streams, we've locked in a lineup full of industry leaders, all set to reveal the types of insights that will drive your strategy to new heights. Take a look at the big group ticket savings available now and start making your plans to attend. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash mumbrella360 to find out more. Joining us on today's Mumbrella Cast is Martin Fills, CEO of Pure Profile. 
Pure Profile has recently posted some impressive revenue figures, and Martin is going to speak to us today about the journey that he has been on with Pure Profile since joining, and also what lies ahead for the research data and insights company. Martin, thank you very much for joining us on UmbrellaCast. Thank you, Olivia, for having me. Can I just start off with, for those who aren't familiar, is your role at Pure Profile and also your journey since you've joined the company not all that long ago? So my journey has been really a combination of technology and insights. Um, I've headed up for large companies in MIA and Asia Pacific, um, much, you know, 1,000 plus uh, people within companies and divisions. And what was interesting with Pure Profile is it is that perfect marriage of technology, media and insights. And having worked with WPP, large companies such as Dynata and Nielsen, it actually was a perfect opportunity to put all of that knowledge together in a company that can absolutely grow. Excellent. And so you've been there now for about 12 months. Uh, eventful 12 months, I, I noted uh, when I covered them earlier in the year, your revenue has increased significantly year on year compared to the previous corresponding period. Tell me some of the strategies you've implemented to achieve that. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. It's that we looked at Pure Profile and said to Pure Profile, what is it that uh, actually clients want? And we're a 20-year-old company with 700 clients. Um, and the common denominator was they wanted clear insights, trusted um, data. They're making multi-million dollar decisions based on that data. They want also to access the data through software as a service as quickly and easily that they can access the data. And so, number one, remove the debt. Number two, be absolutely laser-focused on the core business that is data and insights and, and media and not anything else that we would do. Number three is around the people, so ensuring that existing people have a voice, existing people are rewarded for the excellent work they're doing. Bringing in new people, I'm lucky enough, worked at a number of companies, I'm old enough that I can attract really good people to come and, come and join the company. And then we had, once the debt had gone, Clients came came to us and said, great, I'm running multi-year trackers, I was worried about this, fantastic, I've now got confidence I can do more with you, and also with partners, with partners that we offer the ability for them to generate more insights, uh, their users to get rewarded, actually they want to do more of that. So all of that has come together with the, the um, great recapitalization that we did and uncovering what a strong company at the bottom is. Well, it seems to have worked based on those financial figures that were posted earlier in the year. I know you've also made a number of uh, really interesting announcements and partnerships this year so far. Do you want to just talk quickly about those, perhaps kicking off with the flybys and what that means for the business going forward? We already work strongly with other partners, generating data and generating insights. So in Australia, News Corp with Ray's, um, AA Smart Fuel in New Zealand, and Flybys is obviously one of the largest loyalty programs, um, and they saw in Pure Profile the opportunity that, number one, their members could earn rewards so they have a stickier environment. Number two, they could get more insights on their audiences, which is phenomenally important, and number three, it's a self-paying program. And so with Flybys, um, it's been a long 
relationship and discussions. We announced it about a month ago. Um, it went live three weeks ago uh, where we built a dedicated um, environment that their members could go to. It's all connected with SaaS direct platform work, which is really important for any modern company today, has to think about how open their systems are and how easily they can work with partners. And we still call it a soft launch. The response has been phenomenal. We have a new panelist joining every 60 seconds. Um, those panelists are completing in excess of 2,000 surveys a day, which is generating great rewards for them and for uh, flybys the stick environment. More importantly, or as importantly, for the Australian insights market, these are brand new people who before hadn't given insights. And because of the vast membership that Flybys has, we're able to target in difficult, hard-to-reach audiences. So we now can target in Tasmania, or we can target in Brisbane or Perth, where actually, as an industry, we need those voices and we need those data points. So it's phenomenally exciting. It's still such early days. Um, we will only see more great things come out of it. Yes, this concept of payment for insights is quite interesting. Are there any other developments at Pure Profile in that space that you can talk about? Yeah, consumers are sort of waking up to the fact that they're really valuable. Um, their data is valuable and they're valuable as people. And, and we've always worked with double opt-in and you get rewarded for what you do. So the next stage is where... We also look at any data of individuals. It's actually rewarding them for using that data. So that we are just starting to do with a couple of partners where we are uh, looking at their audience, how their audiences are used in reports that our clients are running and they get rewarded. And additionally, we've just started early discussions about rewarding um, consumers for seeing ads. Moving forward, if we fast forward to the future, then I, as a consumer that's using the internet, should have the ability to either use a free site and therefore um, everything, I will see everything, I know my data might be anonymous data, might be used elsewhere. I could have the ability to get rewarded for every ad and every content maybe I see, or I might pay to use that, in which case I'm not rewarded and equally my data isn't sold. And we are starting to move across that journey. And, and I feel that is a really good opportunity to take that um, group of individuals and educate them about how their data is valuable. And actually from ground up, we start a movement where people start to get rewarded for everything that they see and do online. Well, that sounds great for consumers. I'm sure many listeners would be sitting there going, excellent, I can be paid for all those ads I see when I'm browsing the you know, various publications or networks, etc., or favorite websites. What does it mean for brands? How, how do your clients um, respond to that idea of having to pay now for, for people to share their views and share their, their interests and their preferences? Yeah, look, a really good question. It comes down to accuracy. If I know an audience, let's say I have a million visitors to my website, and actually those million people, I don't know anything about them. I've relied on some third-party cookies, maybe some of my own first-party cookies, but I don't know a great deal. My advertising return actually might be 0.1 or lower percent. 
So I've got a client, my client is Google, uh, sorry, my client is Volvo, and they are advertising on myself as a publisher. If I can increase that click-through to 3% maybe, then actually my advertiser is going to be much happier. I know more about people, therefore the content I can deliver will be better. And what is the trade-off going to be? The trade-off is going to be that I've had to pay the consumer to give me that extra information. And how are you working with clients to make sure that you get that balance right between getting the accuracy that you were just talking about, but also then not either bombarding those recipients or spending millions of dollars? You know, as a company, we believe absolutely in insights to activation. Um, 90% of all of the research that we do today is so somebody can sell some more. If I do government research on vaccinations, it's so the government can understand what are the drivers for individuals to have vaccines, and then we'll see that messaging. If I do research for Medibank or for Apple, it's so they can sell products. So it makes sense that you go from the insights to the activation. Where it actually comes to having publishers, e-commerce sites, and advertising to go over that step of paying for that data, you actually begin by showing how much more accurate and how better it is using first-party data. So today, all of our media planning that we do for all of our clients is based on first-party data. We will run surveys, we will look at raw data, we will understand the audience before we run a campaign. We'll run a campaign and then we'll rerun that data, relook at that survey information and ensure that it's continually improved. That at the moment is in effect free to all the advertisers and, and clients that we work with. Then it is an easier step to say, and if you paid for this, actually it could be X times more relevant for your audience, it could be better for you, it can generate more uh, advertising dollars, etc., then it's an easier step to make. And in terms of the past 12 months, obviously there's been a lot of changes across all industries thanks to COVID. Within your space, within this area of, of research and data, what are some of the big changes that you've seen in the past 12 months and, and how are you looking to continue those or tweak those going forward? Yeah, it, it's a brilliant time to be in the data and insight space. Um, we've got sort of four main tailwinds today. Number one is not in any particular order, but COVID is one. And COVID is interesting because the reason people carry out research is because as consumers, we change. We get older, we marry, we have children, etc., etc. And so we change as consumers. The whole world changed in about a week whether I am going to buy a car, a house, luxury brands, my likelihood of investing, etc., changed. And so, in effect, all of the research that, had to, that was done beforehand had to be redone. So COVID has been really positive for us as an industry because we've had to redo research and, and gather new insights. So that's one. Um, the second one is the amount of data that's available. 90% of the world's data has been generated in the last two years. Brands and companies have more and more data at their fingertips. They've got to make sense of that. They need somebody like Pure Profile to help them interpret the data to make better decisions. Technology. Technology is really important in that every organization, every company in the world has been impacted by technology. I don't go into a bank anymore. If I want to call a cab, I use my phone. If I want food delivered to my house, then I've got an app. 
Um, and we're no different in the data and insight space. So that's given us the ability to deliver much more, much faster to a wider range of clients. And then the fourth one is privacy. And this is really interesting. We're a data and insights and a media company. So as data and insights, privacy is brilliant. So um, if I've got, if I'm a publisher today, I need to build my own first party data sources because Google stops that in 22 and the new Apple upgrade, I'm not anymore able to get data and insights from apps. So I've got to build my own data sets. I need to come to somebody like Pure Profile. If I'm an advertiser, add effectiveness, attribution, again, I need to look at first party data sources like Pure Profile to be able to understand that better. So it's a real boon for a data and insights company. However, if I'm a media company, completely different. Uh, planning might be on first party data, but actually I utilize cookies to be able to use ad networks and DMPs, and that is a headache for everybody that's involved in the media space today, that what will the future solution be? So I think data and insights, we've got four tailwinds, and we've got a really interesting opportunity around that same privacy one for media. Mm -hmm. And how are you finding those clients are responding to that in terms of their receptiveness to going down new paths because they can't rely on the third-party cookies anymore, etc.? I think the IAB has been brilliant. I think that the IAB has been on the front foot giving education pieces, talking points, uh, background information to, the, to a wide audience. And, and that's the first step, is, is education. And, and so that's really good. I think then we sit in several different camps. There are some camps, and this could be a mixture of advertisers, publishers, and agencies who say the problem will be solved. Already, if I'm planning across uh, interactive TV, radio, print, I don't have cookies. Therefore, there are solutions that exist. Um, if uh, that same group will say, but other organizations are too big to fail. Therefore, they have to find a solution. And won't Google also find a solution? So I think you've got that, that camp. You've then got the other camp which is saying this is an opportunity for us to do something better, for us to improve, and how can we do that? And that is such a wide cohort of organisations. Um, um, and we seem to be coming to a broad agreement that it will be a combination of first-party cookies, some sort of identifier, not a cookie that will exist, and a cohort-type marketing where I'm not looking at one person but maybe a cohort of 50 people. Um, that group is really engaging. And I think, actually, there will be some speed bumps. I think there will be some hiccups initially for consumers, advertisers, uh, Australian publishers, and e-commerce sites until this is fine-tuned, but I actually think the final solution will be more robust. I, I think we will end up with better, more accurate planning. I think that we will give more of the power back to the, if I say, Australian publishers, e-commerce sites, and, and local advertising agencies versus um, big, big tech, big walled gardens. I think we will come out of the stronger. And I also think they'll find a solution which will allow us to do better cross-media 
planning than we have done today. And still online sits sort of over here somewhere and everywhere else sits all the other all the other platforms. So I think it will be good, but it's going to be a little bit bumpy along the way. In, in terms of uh, advertisers, clients that you've worked with, do you see any industries or types of organisations that are actually showing leadership in this space in terms of saying, okay, we know we can't rely on this any further. We need to we need to adapt now. We need to adapt quickly. That's a really good question. Uh, two things. I think, firstly, this is a global problem. So we are having exactly the same conversations, whether it's in London, New York, here, Singapore, or, or mainland Europe. So everybody is trying to find the right solution, which is again one of the first times, if not the only time, that we're seeing all of these international bodies come together with a, with a common goal, um, which is great. To specifically answer your question, it's a combination of publishers who will be hurt the hardest are finding the solution, and advertisers who are spending the most don't want to suddenly be restricted where they can advertise, where they can get strong results and also strong reporting. So it's where we can imagine it's across FMCG, it's across automotive, um, it's across financial services that we're seeing advertisers and then the larger publishers are coming together to say, how can we solve this? Sounds very exciting. And on the consumer front, uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, consumers want to be paid for that, for the ads they're seeing and for the data about themselves they're sharing. I suppose, is there a, uh, a tipping point in that in terms of where, you know, the consumers will start putting a price on it? So I will, I as a consumer could say my data is worth X and someone else might say my data is worth Y. Is that in the future as well, whereas at the moment it seems to be more blanket? You're spot on. That is, that is exactly what eventually is going to happen. If I am doing data and insights, for example, then uh, somebody I'm asking who's within the B2B space is going to be paid more than perhaps somebody who's being asked questions around the groceries. It's the same person. It could be the same person that's the weekly grocery shopper that also is CEO of a company. However, when they answer something about IT decision makers versus cornflakes, it's a different price point from the advertiser and therefore from the agency. The exact same thing will happen in the advertising space. I think consumers today don't know they could be paid for this. And so a tipping point is, again, in the awareness and the education piece, once the technology is in place to be able to reward everybody, then once I understand I'm worth something, I've gone beyond just saying I'm not happy with Facebook, Google selling my data, I don't want that to happen anymore. I've actually gone saying, wow, I can be worth something. That will be the big tipping point. It's not going to happen straight away. And I think, again, if I, there are a number of organisations who are trying to do a top-down approach, um, create awareness, um, create uh, lobbying, which ensures, hope they hope that advertisers and publishers say, yes, I'll pay something to consumers um, for doing this. I actually think, as I said earlier, it's going to be the ground up. If organisations like Pure Profile can get 550,000 people in Australia who all say, I want to be paid for my content, but I will give something back, which is deeper knowledge about myself, then I think actually that's going to be the, the better way. And just to round up, 
what excites you most about the year ahead or what do you think are the biggest challenges that or opportunities that Pure Profile needs to address in the next 12 months to get to where you want to see it? Yes, there is so much that one can be thankful for today. I think that, as you said at the top, you know, we are growing very quickly as a company. We'll finish this year um, and we'll be approximately double EBITDA as a company. And for the first time, we'll be cash flow positive, which is really exciting. We opened up two new offices this financial year. Um, and we will grow and extend to more offices. I think fundamentally as a company, the opportunity is in growing where we have low market share. It's adding to the 700 clients. It's finding flybys in other countries. Um, but I, I think to me, first and foremost, it's the people. And so I'm, I'm really fortunate at, at Pure Profile that um, we don't have any... Uh, difference of opinion from founders who are still involved in the company, they're not, or private venture capital or private equity, it's all fully aligned. So the great thing is we're able to build a company at Pure Profile where it is individuals who have the same beliefs, the same values, are at the top of their profession, and there are there is no politics. Um, we feel that we are a total community And if you have a company like that, we're only about 160 people around the world, but if you can create a company where everybody feels like they're rewarded and they want to be there, we can solve any problem. Sounds great. Well, I look forward to seeing those growth stats as the financial results come out later this year. Martin, thank you so much for joining us on UmbrellaCast. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for having us, Olivia. Thank you. And that's it for this week. But before we go... First entries for Mumbrella's Publish Awards are due in just two weeks' time on July 2nd. This year, there are 29 award categories spanning digital, print, sales, journalism, marketing, and more. So whether you're a small or large publisher, B2B or B2C, there will be more than one category ideal for you to enter. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash publish awards for more information. That's it for this week. Tim, Zander, Liv, thank you so much for joining me. Thank Thank you. you, Thanks, Damo.